everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up, BFW's weekly show where we hit on all the latest and greatest news of the week. Obviously, Bayern Munich's been in Portugal this week doing a little bit of a training camp ahead of their match against Werder Bremen in the Bundesliga. So there was some news that emerged out of that. There were a lot of transfer rumors, of course, this being the January transfer window. Bayern Munich has some needs, and they have been linked to, oh, wow, like, roughly a dozen different players if not more so there's been a lot of activity on bfw a lot to try and follow it seems like every day Bayern munich is being linked to someone new or we get a new version of a story or updated news on a story so we've been following it all i hope you guys have been too on our site uh, but it has been quite the interesting week, and a lot of the stuff that came out of camp was very positive for Bayern Munich. It seemed like it was uh, a good series of sessions, were very minimal injuries, I guess. We had a couple of knocks, one to Matthijs De Ligt, who it looked like initially might be out a little bit longer, but the reports, latest reports say that he could be back this weekend against Werder Bremen, which is great. Dio Upamakano was out. Uh, did miss one session with a bit of a knock too. Eric Maxim Chupo Moting also sat one out. So I, I don't think anything was quite serious. Uh, and that's a good thing because when you go away and you engage in two a days, there's always the possibility for not just injuries during the normal course of practice, but fatigue to set in, which sets people up for injuries. But Bayern Munich seems to have handled it well. Thomas Tuchel appeared to be very happy with things as they played out during camp. And now Bayern will come back and they will embark on this mission. It, it, as much as last week was sort of the initial kickoff for the second half of the season. And I know numbers wise, it really wasn't because Bayern had not played uh, its 17th game until last weekend, or I guess technically it's 16th, given that Union Berlin snow debacle. But either way, uh, in my mind, the second half really did start last weekend against Hoffenheim. Bayern Munich handled that game pretty well. Uh, I think you could say a lot of positive things about the effort that we saw there. But it is now time to, to take this challenge, to go through the rest of the Bundesliga schedule, to play out the Champions League for as long as they can. And Bayern Munich, quite simply, has to be ready for the challenges that lie ahead. Now, you look at Werder Bremen and you're going to say this This is one that Bayern Munich should win pretty easily, and quite frankly, I think they will. Don't think that Werder Bremen is quite the juggernaut <laughs> that's going to slow down Bayern Munich, but hey, what do I know? Maybe Werder Bremen can pull it together. Either way, the game's very interesting on a couple of levels, and, and mostly to me it's interesting because this is the opportunity for Matthijs de Ligt to really win Thomas Tuchel over. Now, Acknowledging the fact that he's injured and there is still a possibility that he might not play, Delict has had a lot working against him this year. Uh, initially, it seems like Tuchel wasn't all that big a fan of Delict anyway. We saw the stories come out in the first half of the season that he did not look he did not like Delict's ability to progress the ball forward, which that criticism was debunked by some stats, I believe, by who scored. But either way, Tuchel had that critique of Delict's game. It seemed to extend out further and become a reason, or one of the reasons, that Tuchel did not favor Delict when he was healthy. But either way, Delict was barely healthy in the first half. He had several injuries. 
and they just kind of <laughs> snowballed one right into the uh, into the other and Glick did not get that many chances under Tuchel and knowing that Tuchel if those stories were true doesn't really care for Delict all that much made it turn into a very tenuous spot so of course over the, the course of the last couple of weeks we're seeing Reports emerge that Delict might be unhappy or not satisfied that he could be looking for a transfer this summer. Of course, Manchester United uh, with Eric Ten Hag, Delict's old boss from Ajax. He has chi- not chimed in, but is reportedly very interested in Delict, as will many other teams. Uh, a lot of teams will will want Matthijs Delict. He is that good of a player. But he, for whatever reason, is going to have to prove that to Thomas Tuchel. Now, I thought last weekend against Hoffenheim, Delict did fairly well. I thought it was a good, solid match by the entire back line. Davies did well. Conrad Limer, who was probably the the worst of the foursome, wasn't terrible by any means. I get it. He took a lot of criticism on social media and also on our site, but I didn't think Limer was outright bad. I mean, there are some things in his game as a right back that he needs to, to fix, but he's not really a right back by trade. Uh, the center back tandem of Upamakano and Delict, I thought was really good. I had no complaints. I think that Delict and Upamakano ultimately are the two best center backs on the team. No offense to Kim Min Jay, but Tuchel doesn't see it that way. So these next few weeks, while Kim Min Jay is off on international duty, are extremely important for Matthijs Delict and his future with the club. Now, if you go way back in the day, I guess it was right around 2017, 2018. Delict was initially linked to Bayern Munich. He really wanted to make the move to Bayern Munich, it seemed. Likes Bayern Munich, always had great things to say about Bayern. Ultimately moved from Ajax to Juventus in a move that was probably more guided by Juventus' ability to to want to pay more. Now, at that point, if I remember correctly, Bayern was pretty well stocked at center back and didn't necessarily need to bring Delict into the mix with the chance that he wasn't going to have a big role. You were going to have to pay Ajax a lot for him. You're going to have to pay a lot in salary because quite frankly, that's just what the market was at the time. Fast forward to a couple of years later, Brazo chimes in over the summer. It makes this splash of a transfer that, I mean, it was received so well by all fans. And I thought Delict really proved himself last year. I thought he was the best center back on the team. He stepped up in big moments. When Byron had failures, he stepped to the mic, took ownership of it. A true team leader, and not just on the pitch. He did a lot of things that a lot of players don't want to do. And as we saw this year when several, not several, basically everyone but Thomas Muller skipped town after Byron got shellacked by Eintracht Frankfurt, Delict is the kind of player who steps up in those moments and takes accountability and speaks to the media And he takes the heat so other people don't have to. All of those things do add up. And it's not just his ability on the field. It's all of those things like being a locker room leader, being someone who the media can go to in those tough times, and and being the shield for his teammates. He does all of that. Now, whatever the real reason is that Tuchel doesn't like him, I I personally don't buy that, that excuse about his passing ability. As we've said before, I mean, he came up through Ajax. If he can't pass, if passing is not his forte, then I don't know what he did during his youth academy days. Delict is is the kind of player I think you want to build around. I think when you get a player like that, you absolutely need to bring him in, integrate him in, and let him grow within the club. And you can say, well, what happened at Juventus? Well, look at that Juventus roster and everything that went wrong. <laughs> 
it's quite the bit of a disaster. Not only did they, the entire team have fitness issues because I guess the speed strength and conditioning program at Juventus isn't exactly top notch, but there was a lot of movement on that team. You had Ronaldo there, which is very disruptive. No matter what anyone wants to say, you had Federico Chiesa come in and was an emerging star, but then suffered that horrific ACL injury. You, you had a lot going on, many players coming in and going out. It was just a very unstable situation. And when the opportunity came for Juventus to make some money at a time where they desperately needed to make some money, they sold Matthijs de Ligt. He ends up at Bayern, and he's in this great spot under Julian Nagelsmann where he's thriving and excelling. And it looks like, man, this is finally the guy that you can count on as a center back to step up in these big moments on the biggest stages and play well. It's not a knock to Dio Upamakano, who has been great since Bayern Munich signed him. And a lot of people will knock him for the, the down moments he had against Manchester United last season. And, and deservedly so. He Listen, he had some guffaws on the biggest stage against the best team. And he'll have to go back out this season and prove that in those big moments. But in the end, you had Delict, you had Upamakana, you were set up for success moving forward. You definitely needed someone else, and I can see why they went out and got Kim Min Jae. He was the hottest center back on the market this summer. He was definitely someone coming off a great season, and it made sense. And to be honest, it was a relatively cheap move. But what that did behind the scenes was really push Delict out of the lineup because Tuchel doesn't seem to want any part of having Delict as part of his Champagne 11. Either way, Delict needs to make his move now. He needs to go out and play at the top of his game. He can't have up and down performances. He can't go out and have poor games. And unfortunately, if he wants to win an opportunity here, if he wants to be a starting center back moving forward, he almost can't fail. And, and I realize that is a it's a very tough situation and maybe totally unfair, but that's the way it is under Thomas Tuchel. You can look at several players that are under the same kind of, uh, I would say, scrutiny with Tuchel. You have Thomas Muller, who has rejuvenated the attack and looked great over the course of the last few games. If he has an off match, I have zero doubt that Tuchel won't hesitate to pull Muller out of the lineup. Same with Joshua Kimmich or Leon Goretzka. We've seen it with Goretzka already. He didn't even start the first game coming out of the, the break. There are players that Tuchel simply doesn't care for. And he can say anything he wants through the media. He can issue any types of quotes that he wants. But his actions and how he selects his teams show the real story. So for Delict's sake, and I'm someone who believes that Delict ultimately is the best center back on this team. Again, no knock to Upamakano. I think together... That is a Champions League caliber, caliber winning combination at center back. I think you put those two together, you let them grow together, you have something. Can Tuchel get past whatever hangups he has with Delict if Delict can prove himself in the next few weeks? I don't know. I, I just don't know enough about Tuchel at this point to believe that he's going to have these feelings and get past them. We've seen things plague him over the course of his coaching career at all of his different stops with player relationships. This just might be one of those things. It might be part of who he is, that he makes his mind up on someone and really doesn't change. And that would be a shame for Bayern Munich because I don't think the Ligt is going to stick around to be a number three option here. I think in his mind, he knows he's the best option. 
I think that he won't accept sitting behind Upamakano and Kim Min Jae. And while he'll never, I believe, never become a locker room distraction, I think he's going to get extremely frustrated, especially if he comes out, plays well in the next few weeks, and then Tuchel goes right back to Kim Min Jae, who will undoubtedly be a little bit worn down. Uh, Kim Min Jae showed great signs of being worn down at the end of the first half of the season. So I'm not sure that that this is a, a sustainable solution to just ride Kim Min Jae and Upa Makano throughout the second half. I think you need three good starting caliber center, center backs, and I think you need to rotate them. And I've been advocating that all season. I think a rotation is the best thing for those three players. And in the end, if you need to pick two, you have plenty of game tape to base your selection on. And I believe if Tuchel did it on the up and up, it would be Delict and Upamakano. So I believe these weeks are key for Delict. I think if he doesn't take advantage of it, if he doesn't come out and show world-class performances, I think he's screwed. And I think last week, while I rated it as good, I could see how Tuchel would be able to pick apart some pieces of that match for Delict and, and, and hold it against him, quite frankly. So if if it's like statistics. They can tell you any story you want them to tell. And I think when a coach reviews game film, he can take any spin on it that he wants. And even if Delict graded well under all the advanced statistical uh, sites out there, like Sofa Score or Who Scored, or even if fans rated him well and pundits said how good of a job he did, if Tuchel doesn't see that because he doesn't want to see it, then that's really all that matters. So Matthias Delict has a lot to, to get done, and he's got to be able to take advantage of this situation. That was maybe the biggest thing that I learned over the course of this week at training camp. And uh, Delict certainly is going to have to uh, it really take advantage of Kim Min-jae being away on international duty. And I think, you know, if you look even at the quotes from Kim Min-jae where he talked about knowing that by going on international duty, he was jeopardizing his own starting position because he knows how good Upa Makano and Delict are. So I think everyone is well aware of the situation. All of those center backs understand the deal, but Tuchel could really alleviate a lot of the strain by rotating them equally. And I think that that would be the best for all three. It would certainly keep them healthy. One of the other great stories that came out this week was one involving Thomas Muller and how he handled the benchings in the first half of the season. And I want to read this quote that he gave to build because I think it really embodies an attitude that is not found these days, especially in star players. Uh, and certainly even in young players now do not have this when they absolutely should. When asked about his benchings and Tuchel not favoring him in the first half of the season, Thomas Muller had this to say here at FC Bayern, we are, at the absolute top of the football food chain. There's no room for he's not taking the decision well. Meaning, and I'm paraphrasing here, that 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 you don't have time to pout on the bench. To, Muller continued on. I have to be honest and say that sometimes today's football is too soft for me, which I thought was a terrific quote. Again, sorry for the paraphrasing there. Muller continued, toughness also has its charm. It doesn't have to be inhumane, but coaches should be allowed to show a certain level of toughness with their players. As a player, you have to be able to endure that. Otherwise, you won't go far. And I thought that was great. And it's not just great for young kids to hear in any aspect of their life, whether it's sports or school or work or whatever, 
to have that mindset that things are going to be bad, that you're not always going to be treated great, and that sometimes people are going to be tough on you to get the best out of you is always key to mention. Now, I will argue that Thomas Muller is taking the extremely optimistic approach about how Thomas Tuchel handled him. And maybe that's what he needed to do to get through it. He needed to believe in this. He needed to have that mindset because in many people's eyes, benching Muller so much didn't make any sense, especially after the team scuffled so much in the attack. And, you know, listen, you can throw stats at me right now and say how good they were. And yes, at times the Bayern Munich attack was very good, but I think we all sat through enough games to know that there was something missing, that there was a lot of stagnant play. And there was some really unmotivated periods for that team, sometimes even entire games over the course of the first half of the season. So it, it was definitely disappointing to see that that Muller was benched so much when there were probably times he could have positively impacted matches. Muller went on and continued with the rest of the quote. We have great attacking players at FC Bayern. Competition is big. I think I've also shown this season that I can still give decisive impulses and provide a different type of player to be our attacking line, which is true. Muller brings something different than Bayern's other attacking players. He continued, I want to build on the two games before Christmas, and then we'll see. But fact is, no matter how the coach decides game by game, every little thing at FC Bayern will be questioned from the outside anyway. And he's true. So Muller acknowledges that no matter what he does and how well he plays, it's ultimately up to Tuchel. And no matter what Tuchel does, it's going to be scrutinized. So <laughs> Muller, to me, showed a great deal of why he's so valued as a locker room presence to have this kind of mindset at this stage of his career, when quite frankly, he deserves better. He doesn't have that mindset or, or that mentality that he deserves it. He wants to go out and prove it and earn it every single day. And, and to have that within your locker room with an integrated mix of young players, mid-career and older players, it's completely invaluable. You don't get that perspective from many players these days. You can think about even some of the players over the years who found some unlucky times at Bayern Munich and chose to go the route of complaining to the media or sulking on the bench. I mean, just look at Ryan Gravenberg. He he basically whined his way out of town. Thomas Muller, by all accounts, could have done that. He could have whined. He could have complained publicly, and he would have had every right to because he's earned his stripes. When comparing it to a player like Gravenberg, who did nothing, was, I don't want to say he was gifted a spot at Bayern Munich. They went out, they got him, they saw something in him, and they wanted him to develop. Rather than taking that course of development and working to get better every day, he went to the media multiple times and complained about a situation so much so that he forced his way out of town. So, I mean, I think if you're a young player, whether, uh, and I'm not just talking about players at Bayern Munich or any other club, if you're just a young player on your way up through the ranks in any sport, read those quotes from Thomas Muller, take them in and think about your own status. Think about where you want to be, what you want to do. You know, you could apply it to work, you could apply it to school, you could apply it to anything. But I think that those words were just so incredibly valuable to hear. And it does shed light on why exactly Mueller decided to ultimately re-up with Bayern Munich at a time when it looked like he had become an afterthought. He's never stopped believing in himself. 
And he know and he knew, it seems, that if he got the opportunity, he was going to take advantage of it. And I believe he did just that. So uh, we're going to take a quick break at this moment. We're going to come back, talk about some of the other big stories. And at the end of the show, I will hit on some of the entertainment buzz uh, that I normally do. We'll give you an update on my thoughts on the season finale of Fargo, plus where I'm at with Marvel and all of that. So uh, hang with us. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Weekend Warm-Up Podcast. This is Chuck Smith. Thanks for hanging with us through the first segment of the show. We got a couple other of Byron-related topics before I dive into the entertainment part of this, but uh, I did want to take a quick turn and look at the situation with Florian Verts and how that relates to Bayern Munich, because we saw a story come out this week that it seemed, seems like at this point, Florian Verts is inclined to stay at Bayer Leverkusen through the 2024-25 season, which makes a lot of sense and, and is not really all that shocking. If Xabi Alonso decides to hang as coach, Verts plans to be there with him. This could all take a turn if Alonso does move on to, say, Real Madrid, which is not going to be happening, as we know, with Carlo Ancelotti uh, inking an extension, or Liverpool, which doesn't seem to be ready to part ways with Jurgen Klopp. So unless Thomas Tuchel flames out horribly here in the second half, which I guess could happen, it, it doesn't seem like Verts will be going anywhere because it doesn't look like Alonso will be going anywhere either. Uh, Florian Verts is a player who has been on Bayern Munich's radar for quite some time. It's been over two years. And he is absolutely someone who is pushing the needle uh, for a lot of teams because he is that good. I mean, playing for his club, you would think this is a, this is a player who is a world-class caliber player who absolutely is a game changer playing for Germany. He looks completely lost. I can't understand why, but this just seems to be the case. So with Bayern Munich being linked to him, it's important to understand how feasible it is that something could go down this summer. And if by chance Alonso leaves and inverts does make himself available this summer, which again, it's a long shot at this point. Bayer Leverkusen is looking for somewhere between 130 million to 150 million euros for Verts. Now, we know that Bayern Munich likes Verts. How in the hell are they going to pay that much for Verts when they already have Jamal Musial to play attacking midfield? They already have Thomas Muller, and they seem to have a million attacking midfielders in their youth system. It doesn't seem very likely that Bayern would go that high. I don't know if anybody would go that high. But what I think is going to happen either way is that price tag is not going to drop too far from that. You might be able to get it down to the 100 million to 110 million range, which might be something that Bayern Munich can stomach. But either way, Verts coming to Bayern Munich over the summer is a long shot. And I have talked many times about how, while I like him as a player, I don't know where he fits or how he fits. I don't know if Tuchel would be flexible enough to use Verts and Musiala together. I just don't know how it will work. And maybe that's part of the problem with me is I can't envision it. I can't see Musiala seeding the number 10 position. I don't know if Verts could play wide as a wing uh, with any amount of success that like he would have as a 10. I don't know if Tuchel would be flexible enough to change his, his formation to maybe play something like a 4-3-3 or something with a back 3-3-4-2-1 where you could take advantage of two attacking midfielders? I, I don't know. There are a lot of variables at play, but what I do know 
is it probably wouldn't be the worst thing for Bayern Munich or Florian Wirtz if Xavi Alonso stayed at Bayer Leverkusen. It would help the Bundesliga. It would help Xavi Alonso's reputation. It would absolutely help Wirtz because I think he's still got some developing to do before he's ready for a big move. I think all of those things factored together, plus what we know about Bayern Munich's finances, while they probably could afford that kind of move, doesn't seem like they'd be all that eager to really make it happen. Uh, so especially one year after paying up to nine figures for Harry Kane. So I think another year at Bayer Leverkusen would be the wise move for Florian Wirtz. I hope it happens for everybody involved, for Bayern Munich, for Xavi Alonso, for Leverkusen and for Wirtz. I think all parties win if he stays there for next season. And I think that's ultimately going to be the case. We've seen that Manchester United and Liverpool have shown interest in him. There's even been rumors about Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. I don't think the Spanish clubs have the financial capability to really compete at this point. I'm not even sure Liverpool could make such a big move right now. Manchester City has essentially unlimited cash, so that wouldn't be shocking. But this all makes too much sense for him to settle in really keep establishing himself at Bayer Leverkusen over the next season and a half and become that megastar before he hits the transfer market in the summer of 2025. I think that works out best for everyone involved. And hey, who knows? Maybe even at that point, Tuchel will have worn out his welcome and Xavi Alonso could make that move with Verts to Bayern Munich. Wouldn't that be something? The question I would have for all of you is, will Tuchel make it that far? We have, we have had so many pro-Tuchel people. We have so many anti-Tuchel people. It'd be very interesting to know if Tuchel can survive the next year and a half or if he would even want to continue on. It's not as if it's been completely smooth. He kind of came in as someone to try and stop the bleeding that Julian Nagelsmann had started to get Bayern Munich as a club on the right track. But I don't know if there was ever a long-term plan for Tuchel to be at Bayern for years and years and years. So... I'm very interested to see how the next year and a half plays out, not only for the transfer aspect of it and what that might mean for Florian Verts, but where this club at Bayern Munich is in terms of its coaching, because I'm just not sure Tuchel's going to be the one that makes it uh, that amount of time and if he'll be able to really extend his stay much past that. The final sporting issue I really wanted to touch on, and there was a fascinating, fascinating piece by The Athletic that, that – inadvertently touched on why things fell apart between Robert Lewandowski and Julian Nagelsmann. The primary point of the athletic article was about Harry Kane and his willingness to drop deeper and his role under Tuchel. And that was all a great read. But what really struck me was this part about Robert Lewandowski and Julian Nagelsmann and why things fell apart. Now I've talked a lot about, my perception of what happened. And if you remember Lewandowski's last year, especially the second half of that season, he was extremely frustrated. We saw Kingsley Coman, Serge Gnabry, Jamal Musiala, Leroy Sané, all just firing away at will. They had the go-ahead to look for their own shot rather than to provide Lewandowski service. And you could tell that the Polish hitman was extremely irritated with how things were playing out. I mean, this is a guy that was used to getting pretty consistent service, even when Arjen Robin and Frank Ribery were there, two of, in my mind, the best wingers uh, to have ever played the position. Even they knew what they had in Robert Lewandowski. So when Julian Nagelsmann came in and it had sort of changed the philosophy of Bayern Munich's attack and allowed those wingers and the attacking midfielders 
to have more of a role in shooting than creating, I had no doubt that it irritated Lewandowski. Not only could we see it on the pitch, but you could tell by his comments in the media, his demeanor, everything had started to change. But why did it start to change? Well, as it turns out, and this is interesting given how Harry Kane has played under Tuchel, Nagelsmann essentially wanted Lewandowski to be Harry Kane. He wanted him to drop deeper, come back and help in the buildup, be more of a facilitator and playmaker than he had ever been before. And quite frankly, it didn't seem like Lewandowski wanted to do that at the time. And now we know that he was very resistant to Nagelsmann's approach that he didn't want to play this way. He wanted to continue to play the way and the style that had made him successful for all of those years. Very interesting because Nagelsmann, for the good stuff and good ideas that he had, I don't understand why he would have approached Lewandowski with this, knowing Lewandowski's attitude. I mean, I am a massive fan of Lewandowski's game. I still think he's still a top five striker in the world. I think at various points over the last six to seven years, he's been the best player in the world. To think that you're going to come into Bayern Munich as a young coach and you're going to change the way that Robert Lewandowski plays to benefit players like Kingsley Coman and Serge Gnabry and Leroy Sané, who quite frankly, while great players, were so up and down at that time. I mean, we're talking like inconsistencies everywhere. We had all three of them mired in slumps. I mean, in my mind, Musiala was was the best of those four at the time under Nagelsmann. It was insane to think that he came with that approach and that he wanted to instill this system that was going to turn Lewandowski into Harry Kane. Didn't happen, obviously. Lewandowski got so pissed off that he left. And then it left Bayern in this awful spot without a striker, which, of course, ultimately played a big role in why Nagelsmann got sacked unceremoniously in the middle of a season, which really wasn't going all that poorly. So all of that combined, I, I'm amazed at the way some people can look at the situation and think, I know how to do this better and I'm going to change how a great player looks at and plays the game. I'm just amazed at that. And I can't get over the fact that Nagelsmann, when really all he had to do was come in and not out-tinker himself, not piss the veterans off, and, and not overthink things. He couldn't help it. He could not help it. And I, I did not want Nagelsmann fired at the time because I at the time, I felt like he had finally figured out how to get the best out of this team playing the formation that he wanted. And that was Lewandowski up top, backed up with those two attacking midfielders, which he was using at the time, and using Muller and Musiala as those two players. When when Nagelsmann did do that, Bayern Munich looked extremely, it just looked better. They were quite frankly just better. They looked extremely good doing it. They didn't have a lot of exposure doing it though because Nagelsmann was so hesitant to make that move. As we've seen now with Tuchel as well, like rather than trust Thomas Muller, and I don't, this is not a commercial for Thomas Muller, but it's very similar in the situation. Nagelsmann didn't seem to trust Muller, didn't seem to, to really want to use him at times. And at that point, when he turned back to Muller, it did help the team. Now, ultimately, it didn't help Nagelsmann keep his job. And unfortunately for Nagelsmann, it, it does seem as though that he, 
his biggest problem at Bayern Munich might have been him. He might have just overthought everything. And that's a it's a real shame because I think that Nagelsmann had a lot of good ideas. I think there were a lot of things that he wanted to do. I think in some ways he related to the players and and had decent relationships with them, although you could see how they became fractured at the end. It, I still think it was probably much better than Tuchel relates to them, but either way, it just seems like Nagelsmann couldn't help himself. And, and sure, that absolutely worries me about Germany because we can already see the signs of, of Nagelsmann just tinkering way too much in a format that, that you really can't do that. So I, I was really, I mean, if you get a chance to, to check out that article, I would read it. Because it did help me really, one, it backed up a lot of things I thought at the time that that Nagelsmann and Lewandowski were not in sync on his role, but also that, you know, that because they had an issue and they couldn't solve it and work through it together, it ultimately killed Nagelsmann's career because once Lewandowski left, Bayern had no clue how to continue. They brought in Sadio Mane, a complete and utter bust to try and fill that scoring void, which was a joke because he couldn't do that. And then Nagelsmann really didn't understand how to use him anyway. And I, I don't think that Mane really cared enough about his situation at Bayern Munich to try and learn how to play with his teammates or anything. I think that whole move was just Brazo trying to put lipstick on a pig. He went out and he got the biggest name that he could possibly get to try and fill that void with Lewandowski, whether that piece fit or not. And honestly, Mane never fit. He wasn't a good fit with Bayern Munich. He didn't look good under Nagelsmann. He didn't look good with his teammates. And there was no way he was going to be productive enough to do what Lewandowski did. So to go into that season without a striker, it was almost as if that that Nagelsmann had no chance to survive. But even when he started to, to put things together, and uh, I think I might have misspoke earlier, but when Nagelsmann was at the end there and he had... Muller and Musiala playing as attacking midfielders behind Chupo, it was at least something, right? Like it was at least something that had the potential to work. If he had done that, if he was really going to commit to that formation and done it the year before with Lewandowski, I think he probably could have salvaged the relationship because if anyone, Muller understood the need to keep Lewandowski as the integral part of the Bayern Munich attack. So the fact that that Nagelsmann was very reluctant to do that at times when Lewandowski was there and then basically went through the entire first half of the season toying around with how to play with Mane and where he fit and whether he should, where he should use Mosiala, where he should play Muller, if at all, to finally get to that point in the second half of last season where he teamed up Muller and Musiala and they looked good together. And then, you know, you had a, a tremendous run by Chupo, who's quite frankly, it wasn't probably as good as that run was. I mean, he just, you know, listen, Tuco, Chupo is a decent player, but he's not a starting level level player for a, you know, Champions League contender. By the time he got to that point and found something that worked, he was done. He had one unfortunate loss, went skiing, and that was the, the last we heard from Nagelsmann at Bayern Munich. So I do think if Nagelsmann would have been able to just relate with Lewandowski, it would have prevented him from leaving. If he would have not asked Lewandowski to change who he was, I think that would have been uh, pretty massive. So yes, Nagelsmann that first year with Lewandowski, now we know why that relationship fell apart. 
it would be curious to know how things would have played out differently if he would not have tried to change Lewandowski. And if he would have tried, uh, probably his two most creative players consistently behind Lewandowski with Muller and Musiala. And of course, we know the second season uh, by the time that Tuchel really did, I mean, Nagelsmann started to try and play that way with the two behind Chupo. Uh, it was honestly too late. And at that point, it just seemed like Byron was looking for a reason to uh, get rid of him, at least by Byron. I mean, Ali Khan and, and Brazo, since they pulled the trigger on that. So uh, very interesting piece by The Athletic. I would definitely check that out if you get a chance. Final thoughts for the weekend warm up podcast. Uh, I did catch the season finale of season five of Fargo, and I will say this. What a tremendous season. And I thought about trying to figure out how this stacks up in great individual seasons of television. And it's up there. I mean, I don't know in the end where I would put it on my scale. And if you read the weekend warm up column that I do for the site, you'll see that I laid out some of the great seasons, you know, true detective season one, Soprano season one and two, in my mind, the wire season one, two, and three breaking dad, breaking bad one, two, four, and five. Deadwood season two, either way, however you want to slice it. So many good seasons of television. This is right up there with any of them. I won't stack rank it at this point because I just don't have the mental capacity, but I will say this. Uh, it was worth the time. It was a great ride from start to finish. A terrific story by the writers who continued to keep things twisting and turning and keeping it and kept it interesting over the course of the episodes. I can't say enough about how well it was done. Everything from the editing to the cinematography, to the soundtrack, to especially the acting. And that's where I want to start with this one. John Hamm as Roy Tillman, Jennifer Jason Lee as Lorraine Lyon, Sam Sproul, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, as Ola Munch, which I got the actual pronunciation for from that last episode. All tremendous, astonishingly good. They were terrific and they carried the show. And as much as Juno Temple was really, really good as Dot slash Nadine, those three in my mind were the absolute stars for the way that they played those characters. John Hamm was just pure evil, just an absolute menace as Roy Tillman. Jennifer Jason Lee as a Lorraine Lyon, maybe the role of a lifetime for her. Honestly, it was just the way she handled that. It seemed like she was born to play that role, that role. And Sam Sprawl, so as as Ola Munch, to, to take that character and play it the way that he did, everything from the, the Mo Howard haircut to the, uh, I guess it's a duster type jacket, a duster if you're familiar with, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, you know, the, the duster was pretty legendary there. Uh, just awesome. Uh, just completely great. You could go down the line of, of the great performances in this one. Uh, Lamorne Morris as Whit Farr, the state trooper. I mean, another great performance, but uh, just awesome, awesome story. Awesome acting job. You know, in the in the finale, of course, you get the fallout from the ranch. What happens in the confrontation between the militia and the military slash police slash FBI? You don't see shootout as much as you hear it you don't see the end result and how many people were affected or killed by that shootout but you do get all of the finality that you wanted with 
characters like Roy Tillman. And and I guess it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Joe Carey as Gator Tillman, having to play that last episode with his eyes out or blinded uh, because Ola Munch removed his eyes in an eye for an eye, old biblical type thing. Uh, Joe Carey, again, <laughs> unreal performance as Gator Tillman. I mean, I've been critical of the character Gator Tillman because it seems like there's always one over the top dope uh, male character that is just like completely makes rash decisions and is dumb. Maybe that's a reflection of uh, the, the younger generation of guys. Maybe I'm one of them. I, I guess I'm maybe not that young, but maybe it's a reflection on Gen X or Gen Y or Gen Z or the Zoomers or whatever. I don't know, but to play like such a deplorable character the way that he did and and to do so, uh, I thought Joe Carey was great as well. So uh, great story. Highly recommend season five of Fargo. My only critique, and this is, again, if you didn't watch it yet, just skip to uh, the Marvel part of this. But um, my only critique was I felt like if you really wanted to go and do the full Fargo, when we see Ola Munch at the end of the movie, I mean, at the end of the series and those final scenes, I almost felt it would have been more Fargo if he would have completed his task. And if you, if you watch the show, you know what I mean. Instead of having this epiphany that there was a different way to live life. So I would have probably preferred my version of the ending, though I won't complain too much about it because it was so good from start to finish. And and again, I always judge these series. Is it worth your time? And I felt like this was completely worth my time. So highly recommend it. Check it out if you can. Quickly talk through where I'm at in my Marvel Odyssey. If you've been following me, you know that I have been going my way through the Infinity Saga with the Marvel movies and have been making progress week by week. And as I always say, I'm staying up way too late to do this. So my sleep schedule is way thrown off and I need to be way better than I am than this. But I, I started this and now I feel the stupid obligation to try and finish it and do so in a timely manner. So I got through Doctor Strange this week, gave that a 3.75 out of five. Thought it was really good. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Stephen Strange was great casting. Again, Marvel and Disney nailed the casting for all of their roles completely unreal how well they did this uh i wasn't sure how i would feel about how the mystic part of the marvel whole greater marvel universe would play out on screen i will say that the effects were awesome they did a really good job making you feel like they understood the character and made you under like they understood the the types of powers that these characters had both the antagonist and protagonist Really good job with that. So I came away really impressed. I thought they good, they did really well with it. And a 3.75 out of 5 is a good score for me. I really liked the movie. So uh, very impressed by it, even though I didn't really expect to. I thought this would be one of the movies that would be a letdown, but it, it surely was not. And I felt, again, I felt good about the time I spent watching it, which I think I did over the course of three days. Not exactly the old theater experience. Thor Ragnarok, I gave it a 4.5 out of 5. A lot of you had given me the heads up that this was maybe the best of the uh, Marvel movies, and I thought it was great. A um, couple of holes in it that I didn't like, but I will say the plot was good. Uh, the characters were great. Again, the byplay between Thor and Hulk is just awesome. I did not like seeing Asgard fall. Uh, I thought that was disappointing. I did not want to see Asgard uh, be destroyed. I was always 
kind of wondering as I was watching that, like, what were the Asgardians going to think when when Thor began to take them there to Earth? As we know, that journey gets cut a little bit short uh, through those post uh, through the the post credit scenes. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that plays out over the course of the next couple of movies. But I did like Thor Ragnarok a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. The use of Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin, top notch, great time to use it. Loved it and uh, thought it was a great movie. Uh, 4.5 out of 5. It was really, really well done. Didn't score the highest of, of the Marvel movies for me, but doesn't mean I wasn't a huge fan of it. I just didn't really like some of the holes in terms of how Hulk ended up on that planet with Jeff Goldblum. And I mean, I, I get how he did, but it just seemed a little bit of a stretch. And then uh, I knocked it a little bit because it was too much of the hero type characters getting their asses kicked. So, so I, I don't know. I, I think of the, the God of thunder. He took way too many beatdowns in that movie. Um, but either way, great, great flick, highly recommended. Ant-Man and the Wasp was the last one that I got to for this week and really good. Again, 3.75 out of five. Uh, I'll start by saying that I was critical of Evangeline Lilly in the first Ant-Man movie. And I thought, I just didn't think she was fitting as the character, but she did much, much better uh, the second time around. And it could have just been the writing. Uh, it could have been that maybe I didn't like her haircut. I, I don't know. There was just something that struck me wrong, but she was uh, great in the second one, as was Paul Rudd as Scott Lang. Good story going into the quantum verse, uh, pulling back out Janet Van Dyne, which was a nice little throwback to people that might have read those comic books as a kid. Uh, once real note I wanted to put out there, a couple, actually a couple here. Uh, Michael Pena is Luis, uh, T.I. is Dave, and David Dashed Malshian as Kurt. Great supporting roles as Scott Lang's uh, business partners and kind of uh, just uh, kind of, <laughs> I guess, his buddies. Uh, they, they were all great in their roles. And Michael Douglas, now he acclaimed actor, so many great roles. Gordon Gecko, of course, probably stands out for a lot of people. The, the Hank Pym character is really hard one to play for a lot of reasons, if you know the history of the character, especially some of the spins that were put on Hank Pym. Uh, over the course of uh, Marvel comic books. Um, but he did a, a really good job with Pym and playing those complexities out. And at a time in his career where he could have really been packing it in, just collecting a check, Michael Douglas didn't. You could tell that he, he put in the time to understand who Hank Pym was, what his attitude was, what his mentality was, what some of his character flaws were. And uh, he really put that forth on the screen. And I thought it was an exceptional job and a fun movie. Those Ant-Man movies, at least the first two, uh, a very good diversion at times from the, the greater Infinity Saga. And it's not that they weren't part of it because they were, and they, they were smaller parts of it than maybe some of the other movies. But I felt like they were a good diversion to get away from some of that. And of course, the, the final post-scene credit kind of leaves us at a spot where we know some of, just by pop culture, you know some of what goes down in infinity war so i'm guessing that's where the second end credit scene uh with evangeline lily and well, i guess i should say uh, the character named tank pym and uh molly pym and janet van dyne all disappearing i think we i kind of get the gist of what happened there but uh again really fun movie 3.75 out of 5 i i haven't found one i've been totally disappointed with yet i think they were all good at a minimum. So uh, 
I know. I listen. In the in the beginning of this, I was maybe a little bit harder with my scoring because my expectations were so high. But once I started to understand how Disney was laying out these movies and how quickly they dove in the plots and the lack of buildup, it be, just became part of the format to me that I got used to. So uh, again, I felt like I did not waste any time with any of those movies. Uh, that'll about wrap up the weekend warm up show. So I appreciate you hanging in and uh, love to hear your thoughts on some of those Byron topics, along with Fargo and those Marvel movies. I know a lot of you are, are going through and some of you are going back and watching them. Some are you, some of you are, uh, are checking them out for the first time. So I uh, like hearing about your journey through this as well. Uh, get me at the barrel blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB works You can get our tweet Meister, Tom Adams at Tommy Adams 71. You can get, I need no name at BFW. I N N N you can get Siler at C Y L three R get all of our great podcasters and writers at BavarianFootballWorks.com. We'll have all of your awesome coverage of the vertebraman match this weekend, all of our normal stuff, the live blog, match awards the observations the post-game podcast will have all the reactions plus all of the news that's going on which as you know it's just a ton so stick with us at bfw we're having a great time doing this for you and giving you all the content that you want regarding Bayern munich germany and all of the other dumb stuff that i talk about so uh it's much appreciated have a couple of beers on me enjoy the match this weekend and we will see you next time